You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Lord, we just thank you that we can gather together. What a freedom we have in a country that that is able to, to corporately gather without fear of persecution without the fear of, of your, your life being sent to prison, separated from family, potentially death in many places around the world. And Lord, we just thank you for that privilege. And we ask now that you would speak through your word. Use me as a broken vessel to make your word known. I pray for clarity over confusion. I pray for wisdom for us all. I pray that we would all not just understand the content, but we would rightly apply it to our lives today, tomorrow, and every day after. Speak to us now, for your name's sake. Amen. So I'm originally from Alabama. And in Alabama, we have this term that we kind of grew up around, this idea of of people that come from old money and people that come from new money. And so this idea of people that come from old money, we often kind of notice it's, it's commonplace for these people if they're generations, generations of wealth. Three or four generations in, they may grow a bit dull to the idea of their money, their wealth that they have. They may miss the, the privilege and opportunity that they have in layers and layers of the wealth that they've had for generations. Well, then in comparison, you have this idea of new money. It may be someone that has, has gotten a job that has a, a high pay grade. It may be someone that got an inheritance from a family member. But for them, when they come into new money, they immediately know it. They immediately realize, oh wow, I have things I did not have before. I have opportunities I did not have before, and they recognize it. And why do I start with that illustration? I start with that illustration to say, in in the same way in our passage today, you have 10 lepers. And based on the way Jesus talks about it, it seems that nine of them were of Jewish background. And nine of them come from the ways of God. And, and you kind of get this impression that they've grown dull to the things of God. And then you have this one that, that is a Samaritan that probably didn't grow up around the things of God. And you see a response to Jesus and the good news that he brings. And you see a response that changes his life forever. And so for us, as we, as we approach this passage... We often come to passages like this and we say, oh, I know the leper that needs to hear this. But I want to challenge you and, and first say, perhaps we are the leper. Okay, so, so we, we have this picture. And when Jesus heals, we always get this picture of he, he has a, a plan and a purpose for whenever he heals. He's always teaching something through his healing ministry. He's always using miraculous healings to teach something about the kingdom to come about the kingdom he brings. And so I would argue today that that we have this physical representation of healing that is a picture of the spiritual need in each and every one of our hearts. So he is healing physical leprosy, but pointing to the leprosy of each and every one of our hearts. And so as we approach this, I always try uh, to summarize our passage. I've titled this, this, this sermon, Gospel Thankfulness. Because the reality is when we, when we come to the gospel, when the gospel changes our lives, it should eternally change us to have thankful hearts. 
Okay, so I always try to summarize a passage with one big idea. I think Cody and Ryan do the same. But one big idea, if I could summarize this, if you fall asleep for the rest of the sermon, please get this one sentence. The transformational salvation of Jesus leads to a heart of thankfulness. The transformational salvation... I use that on purpose because we often in a cultural Christianity that happens in the South, we talk about this moment in time that happened. And so often people say, I said a prayer when I was seven and nothing about their lives have changed ever since that moment. And so I start here by saying the transformational salvation. We should work with the assumption that if we are followers of Christ, that our hearts and lives are transformed by the gospel. So if we are are following Jesus, there is this transformation that is expected. Where I am today is not where I will be in five years. Where I am in five years is not where I will be in ten years. I'm being made into the image of Christ. So the transformational salvation of Jesus leads to a heart of thankfulness. We're not thankful to earn salvation. We're thankful because of salvation. And so I think this passage really highlights this for us. And so we're going to look at three realities of meeting Jesus today. Three realities of meeting Jesus. Because you see this very explicitly with the, with the lepers, but I also want us to understand their experience as lepers. And specifically this one leper should be our experience. That we have the need for mercy, the need for cleansing, and the thankful response. So we're going to look at this today. So first, let's look at the need for mercy. This is in verses 11 through 13 in chapter 17 of Luke. It says, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Okay, so for us, we read this and uh, you guys are just jumping into the middle of a book. And so we don't understand kind of what all has been going on in the context. In our church, we've been teaching through the book of Luke for like a year and a half now. And, and with that, we have to understand all of the context around when it says while he's on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Well, Luke could be separated into three sections. The first section is his Galilean ministry. And then, I think it's in chapter 11, somewhere in there, he, he, he makes a turn. And literally it says, in the Greek, it says he turned his face to Jerusalem. He set his eyes on Jerusalem and begins a journey And the second third of Luke is looking at his teaching ministry. And so all of this has been, he set his eyes on Jerusalem, and we know what happens in Jerusalem. Because we're on this side of the cross looking back. He set his focus to, now I'm on the way to the cross. And it wasn't a straight path. He meandered here and meandered there. But it was the the attention of his heart. So this middle section of the book of Luke, if you ever read through it, understand his attention is set on, I am on my way to the cross. I'm teaching of the kingdom that comes through the cross. And so Luke gives us a reminder here in verse 11. Hey, just in case you forgot, his, his, his gaze, his eyes are still set on Jerusalem as he's on his way to the cross. He was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And Samaria and Galilee, for us, we may not know much about it, but, but in the cultural context, this would be a, a highly Gentile region. Galilee had many regions that were highly Gentile, and Samaria was known as kind of the half-breeds of the Jewish people. The people that had, had been conquered and had intermarried 
with Gentiles. And so this was people that were often avoided by the Jewish people. And as he enters a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And it's important to pause. We, we hear about leprosy. We may see movies where leprosy was a thing. It's not really something we talk about in our current culture because we have modern medicine. But in this day, leprosy often was a death sentence. We thought COVID quarantine was bad. But this was lifelong quarantine. This was separation from family, friends, religious practices. You were separated from the world for the rest of your life unless the leprosy went away. So, apparently, this might have been kind of a a refuge for some lepers, a leper colony where they had separated. For whatever reason, there were 10 lepers together. And they stood at a distance because the law, the Jewish law, required them to stand on the other side of the street. And if someone was coming to yell, unclean, unclean, stay away from me. I might be contagious. So they stand at a distance and raise their voices. Saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And at this point, you can assume Jesus has, has had quite a ministry up to this point. Many miraculous things had been done. He had healed the sick, the lame had walked, the deaf could hear, and on and on you could go. And so they had probably heard about who this Jesus was, and they said, I don't know who he is fully, but I want what he offers. And so they stood at a distance and yelled, Jesus. Master, have mercy. Keep us from what we deserve. That's how I would define mercy. We may deserve what we have, but please keep us from that. And for us, I I want to continue to point us back to the fact that, that we are the leper. And I want us to think about this idea. Does our heart say, Jesus, Master, have mercy. Keep me from what I deserve. Because one sin, realize that, one act of disobedience against a holy and perfect God is enough to eternally separate us from God. Like This is the root of the gospel, that that we were separated from God by our sin. And so there should be this realization that we all need mercy. And our sin has separated us from God eternally. Because if you realize that God is a holy and perfect God, and there is no sin in him, we can't stand in his presence. So we need mercy that Jesus offers. And they realize this in a physical sense, but for us, we should realize this in a spiritual sense. And so, you see this need for mercy Secondly, you see the need for cleansing, and this is just in verse 14. And this is an interesting verse, and there's a lot to unpack in this one little verse. So they yell out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Okay? 
Well, if you read Leviticus 13 and 14, you see this picture of the Levitical law. Um, that, that's riveting reading. If you want to take an early nap this afternoon, it, it, it's, it's, it's rich stuff. Still important, though, for us to understand the context here. The Levitical law required... It had this, uh, Leviticus 13, it gives this picture of how you identify leprosy, skin disorders. And then Leviticus 14, it gives this picture of how you can be cleansed. You had to go to a priest. A priest could not make you clean. A priest could only declare you clean if you were already clean. So it's interesting here when you think about it that Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. Well, I'm sure they looked at each other and they thought, well, I have leprosy. I'm going to get to the priest. He's going to send me away and say, I can't make you clean. So so there was at least a degree of faith within all 10 of these individuals. A degree of trust that Jesus could do what he's saying, what they're asking him to do. And so he sent him to the priest. And so for whatever reason, they all, in some degree of faith, they go together. And I'm sure they started walking and saying, what do we do if we get there and we're not healed? What do we do when we get there if if the priest says, what are you doing here? You still have leprosy, but as they're going, the passage says, as they're going, they were cleansed. And I always like, with a passage like this, there, there's of course some uh, uh, conjecture in this of me assuming what happened, but I like to try to picture it like a movie scene. And I imagine these ten walking, and then one of them says, Billy, look at your skin. He looks, he says, Bobby, look, you're clean too. And then in a moment, in their minds they go, they say, well, Jesus asked us to go to the priest, so let's go. We can be declared clean. We can, I can sleep in my bed for the first time in who knows how many years. I can see my wife. I can, see my, I can hold my daughter. I can enter the synagogue again and participate in religious worship. They realize in that moment how much of their lives change immediately. And I picture the nine of them sprints to the priest. Gone. They had a moment with Jesus. But what about their lives changed outside of a physical need? What about their lives are transformed there, but you'll see the one, he realizes who is the source of the healing. Because the priest could not cleanse them, the priest could only declare them clean. And so for us, as we think about this as well, the need for cleansing. We talked about sin, right? And leprosy all through the scriptures is often a picture of a heart attitude as well. It's often talked about in the Old Testament, connecting it to the heart. And so I don't think this is by accident that Jesus does this. But he says, go to the priest, seek cleansing. Be cleansed. So there should also be this realization when we meet Jesus. We all know we need mercy. But we, when we know we need mercy, we should also think about standing in the presence of God where you say, how can I ever be clean enough to stand in God's presence? To stand in the presence of a holy and perfect God. I would argue only God himself can step in in our place, which is what he did in Christ, which is what he did in Jesus to cleanse us, 
And so we see this picture of cleansing in the scriptures that Jesus was the spotless lamb. And his blood can cover us. That now in the eyes of God, he sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at us if we're in Christ. This is the picture of the gospel that we get this glimpse of this in this passage. So it should remind us of our own need for cleansing. So think about these two things. The realization of our need for mercy and our need for cleansing. Do we ever stop and think about that or have we grown dull to those realities? Is this old money to us now? Or is this still the freshness of the, of the gospel has changes, changed every aspect of our lives and it continues to be something that is on the forefront of our minds for all of eternity? That I once was on a trajectory to death and condemnation, but God intervened. And so you see this picture. There's this clarity, the cry for mercy. Jesus says, as he says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. So this need for cleansing. And then thirdly, we see this thankful response. But notice. Only one of the ten responds. And, and I would even argue we must pay attention to Jesus' words here because I think he's addressing the heart of the one and also addressing the heart of the nine. And I would make the argument that there are many in the South specifically in a nominal Christian culture that had a momentary experience with Jesus. Nothing about their lives ever changed. So let's pay attention to the one here as we look at the thankful response. And think about our own hearts. As we think about the leprosy of the heart that's in need of mercy and in need of cleansing. And how we are called to respond as a byproduct of what Jesus offers. So let's look at this last, last section. The thankful response in verses 15 through 19. Now one of them. When he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. So I imagine here, he, he stopped, he watched the nine run ahead. And he looked back and he thought, they can declare me clean, but Jesus cleansed me. I know the source of the healing here. And I'm sure he wrestled in that moment, yes, but that direction is comfort and all of the things of the world that I've missed. Family, community, religious practices. But he pauses and turns back. Notice where he gives praise. He knows the source of this healing here. We, we can't work with this assumption that everybody fully understood who Jesus was. Because over and over again, you see this confusion about who Jesus was. We now know he's fully God, fully man, God incarnate. But he turns back and he glorifies God. He says, I know the source of this healing and it is God himself. 
And he glorifies God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. You look throughout the scriptures, and anytime someone comes into the presence of God, they fall on their face. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And you see a similar response from this one. He falls at the feet of Jesus and he says, thank you. Thank you. God has healed me. And he was a Samaritan. And we read over this and we think, yeah, 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 good Samaritan. It's actually a positive term in our culture today. In this day, it was the worst term. It was the term no one wanted to be associated with Samaritans. And over and over again, you look at Jesus' ministry and he uses the Samaritan as the teaching tool. You look at the story of the good Samaritan. Who proved to be the neighbor? The one who showed him mercy. The Samaritan. And here, once again, it says, and this one was a Samaritan. And so you work with the assumption, we can't know for, with certainty, but you work with the assumption that the other nine might have been of Jewish background. And the Samaritan, the outsider, the half-breed, returns. In verse 17, it says, Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Jesus asked a very pointed question, right? He said, Didn't I heal ten of you? And only you came back? Where are the other nine? In verse 18, was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? He says, only the foreigner came back? He says, do the others not realize what's just happened? Do the others not realize what, what has taken place? And then I'd argue you have kind of the, the exclamation point on this passage in verse 19 that we'll spend a few minutes here as we think through this. And he said to him, stand up and go. <clears throat> Your faith has made you well. Or as some versions say, your faith has saved you, which I think in the Greek is probably a better rendering of the word here. So you see this picture, 10 are cleansed physically. And one returns and you see this picture of heart cleansing. Okay, so, so he says, stand up and go, your faith has saved you. Now, is this saying he's earned salvation because of his response? No, it's saying he has salvation because he's received the grace of God. And this is the thankful response of the gospel. This is how we respond to the gospel. And he says, you have been saved. And you see this picture over and over again when you see miraculous healings of Jesus. He tells the paralytic, take your mat and go. But prior to that, he had said, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins? Just so you may know who is doing this, take your mat and leave. So you see this picture over and over again. Your faith has made you well. You have been forgiven your sins. And it's worth considering. The nine. They had a moment. They might have talked about that moment for the rest of their lives, but did anything change in their lives? We, we, we don't see anything else of them in the scripture, so it's hard for us to know. But what we do know 
is the response of the one. And as we think about this, we must notice the thankful response. That, that this wasn't just something that is like, yeah, 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 that was then. That, that he turned from all of the things he could go receive immediately with this cleansing. And he went to Jesus and he said, thank you. And I can only imagine the rest of his life was devoted to Jesus. That he said, I once was leprous on a path to death, separated from every aspect of culture. And then this Jesus intervened. So for us, as we think about this passage, as we think about this picture, when we realize our need for mercy, our need for cleansing, does it naturally lead to the outpouring of thankfulness in our lives? Does it lead us to fall at the feet of Jesus regularly? As we, as we gather each Sunday, is this just something we do? Or are we gathering together each week collectively to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for cleansing. Thank you for the gospel. So we see a thankful response. And we should wrestle with this idea of, do we, does the gospel lead us to the same kind of response? Or have we grown dull to the gospel? And so, just in summary, I wanted to return to this. We looked at this through the passage. I want to return to it in the reality of us meeting Jesus, just in summary form. So first, we need the mercy of God to even have the opportunity for salvation. When we meet Jesus, this should be a reality for each and every person on the earth. We must realize that we need the mercy of God to even have the opportunity for salvation. And, and an interesting fact, in many of the, the languages that are represented in our church, the word mercy and the word grace, they have the same word in their languages. So in the Dutch language, mercy and grace is the same word. In the Serbian language, mercy and grace is the same word. So I had a fun time trying to explain mercy and grace to, to a, a language culture in our Bible study the following week when they said, wait, 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 what do these words mean? You talked about them differently, but in Serbian, it's the same word. So, so as, I, as I talked about it, I tried to think of an illustration to try to explain mercy and grace to our people. And it's almost like we're in a car and we're stuck, the steering wheel's stuck, we are driving off a cliff and God intervenes and keeps us from the cliff. That's mercy. We're on a path due to our sin that is on a path to destruction. And God intervenes and keeps us from that destruction, that is mercy. And that in and of itself is glorious and magnificent. But then you have this picture of grace. Which is God not only keeps us from the cliff, he takes us out of the car and he takes us to his kingdom, clothes us in the royal clothes and puts us at the table with him. That is grace. So mercy is keeping us from what we deserve. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. Okay, so, so we need the mercy of God to even have the opportunity for salvation. Our sin has left us eternally separated from a holy and perfect God. And then secondly, we need cleansing from the eternal stain left by sin. When we meet Jesus, this should be the response of our hearts. You say, I can't, 
I can't wash it off. I can't wash it off on my own. We need cleansing from the eternal stain left by sin. The lepers, they knew they had a stain they couldn't wash off. They could cover it up, but they still had leprosy that was visible to all to, for all to see. No priest or religious figure can cleanse us. Think about that. Only a holy and perfect God can cleanse us. And by sending Jesus, God offers to cover us in his righteousness. That's grace. Cover us in his righteousness. Think about that. This is the foundation of the gospel as we consider it. That through the gospel, through the cross, through his resurrection, we now can be covered by the very righteousness of God through Jesus. So through sending Jesus, God gives us what we do not deserve, which is grace. So you see these two pictures of mercy and grace, ultimately, mercy and cleansing. And so when we meet Jesus, our natural response should be thankfulness. When we realize mercy and grace, this picture of the gospel, that we offer a life of gratitude to God for his mercy and grace. Not to earn mercy and grace, but because of mercy and grace. This isn't something we're working to get. This is us working out of what we already have. And so I always like to do this with with my congregation in Slovakia, in Bratislava. I I ask application questions. And this is open-ended questions so that you may wrestle with, how do I apply this passage to my life as I think about it? So I have four questions for us as we close. Are you aware of your need for the mercy of God? Daily. Not just there was a moment where I was like, yeah, I need mercy. Are you aware that without Christ, I am doomed because of my sin? Is this something that we constantly have on the forefront of our minds? Second question. Do you marvel at the grace of God and the cleansing he offers? There should be a natural marveling celebrating who God is because of the grace he offers and the cleansing he gives. Third question. Do you respond to God's mercy and grace with a thankful heart? Ultimately, the question is, are we a thankful people? I live in a culture in Slovakia that's pretty dark. It's pretty ungrateful. It's pretty angry. And I always say, how much more should the gospel stand out? Because my heart, rather than becoming like the culture I'm in, I should stand out as a light in the darkness. Now, is that always easy? No, not even remotely. Do you respond to God's mercy and grace with a thankful heart? America's getting darker and darker spiritually, looking more and more like Europe with each passing year. Do we look like the world or do we look like Christ and this leper with a thankful heart for what Christ has done through us? And then the last question here. I ask this to my congregation as well, so don't worry. This isn't just specific to you. If an unbeliever came to visit this church, 
would they say that we are a people marked by thankfulness to God? What do they see when they come in? A pastor friend of mine in Atlanta, he always talks about, I view the church as putting the family of God on display for the watching world to see. Are we putting the family of God on display for the watching world to see each week? We should be a people gathered together that we celebrate. We sing and we praise for we say, I once was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God made me alive in Christ Jesus, not by my works so that none may boast. It is a gift of God. And so I'm going to pray for us. And then the music team will come up. And, and, and may we think about responding. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us when we grow dull to the magnificence of the gospel. Forgive us when we look no different than the world around us. But Lord, may you use this passage, may you use your word to encourage and remind our hearts of the gospel you've given us, of the good news you have provided to us, and the transformation that you bring through it. I pray that this church would be marked with thankfulness through the gospel. Lord, your word demands a response. May we respond rightly, not just understand information, but apply this to our lives as we move forward. In your name I pray, amen. Responding, uh, Nick and I were uh, talking about what would be a good way for us just to kind of hear a little bit more about uh, what God is doing uh, in Slovakia. And so uh, I thought a Q&A would be, would be good for us. Uh, as we, we think about this, so first, Nick, brother, thank you so much for preaching God's word. I, I hope that you are encouraged about what God has done in Jesus Christ. I pray that you're challenged. Uh, I don't know about you, but, but someone who professed faith at seven years old, that old uh, money idea really hit that like, man, I, I can lose the, the sense of what God has really done in Jesus Christ for me, and it just becomes rote. So I pray and hope that you are challenged. Uh, Nick, thanks for, for challenging us in, in those ways. Um, as we start, uh, I'm sure it can be confusing. You're on the field, but you're at a church, so describe what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, so first, I, I do want to pause and just say thank you to you all, because you all have, have sent us support, um, especially in this season. We've just had another kid that, that your financial support to us and a one-time gift, is, we're so thankful to you. Um, it was needed. It was timely. Cody called and said, hey, we're looking at giving. And I said, hey, we have specific needs right now, like that we just talked about today. So, um, so I just thank you for that. Uh, we're very thankful for your church and your partnership in the gospel. Um, so what do I do? So I'm, I'm a missionary, but not a missionary, right? And you think, well, what do you mean by that? You're on the field. Well, I'm a pastor. I'm not hired by any missions organization. Um, I, I felt a conviction to be accountable to a local church. When, when we started the process with a, with, a, with a missions agency and we stopped halfway through because I wanted, I wanted to be accountable to a local church. Biblically, I see this idea and this picture of accountability to a church. 
that they are the ones that hire me and they're the ones that, that hold me to the ways of the scriptures. And so we wanted to do that. So it led us to Hong Kong briefly in a two-year span where I was an associate pastor at an international English-speaking church. And then through that, a, a long story short, the Lord led us for me to be a preaching pastor, the senior pastor, the only pastor in my current church, um, in Bratislava, Slovakia. And so with that, we are an international English-speaking church. And so many people come to a city such as Bratislava and they work for two or three years. They know they won't be there long enough to learn one of the hardest languages in the world. And so they're looking for somewhere to worship. And some of them are unbelievers just looking for community. And so this gives an opportunity for those, many of our people, English is their second, third, or fourth language. And this gives an opportunity for them to, to hear the gospel in a language that they know where they may not know Slovak. And so, like I said, we have 25 countries represented. And many of them, English is not their heart language. So... so being in that context can be difficult. You've, you've uh, been in Hong Kong, now you're in Slovakia trying to learn languages, so obviously it can be difficult. Um, when it comes to ministry, though, what has been the most challenging aspect of serving in an international context? Yep. So, so one of the biggest challenges in this kind of context, especially in a culture like, like Slovakia. So Slovakia is post-communist, and so you, you, you have a lot of, of uh, reverberating challenges that come out of this, this communist. I mean, this is a young country. It's learning to be a country. Bratislav is learning to be a capital. And so there's a lot of darkness that surrounds a place like Slovakia. It's very Catholic, but it's very nominal. It's very cultural. And so we're viewed as a cult, as Protestants. And so there's a lot of pieces to that. Um, but... But one of the biggest challenges we have is many people view the church as kind of an escape from the culture. Oh, we can come and we can speak in English and we can understand each other and we can be welcomed. And this is my getaway from the world around, which is good in some aspects. But what we miss is the mission of God. And so one of the things that I'm really challenging our people to do is think about our five circles of influence, where we live, where we work, where we play, our recreation, where we shop, and our family. Can you identify one person in each of those five circles of influence and just build a relationship with them with gospel intentionality? I'm not asking them to go out and get a bullhorn and scream on the corners. I'm saying, hey, just be intentional with, the, with what you're already doing. And, it, and it's really challenging to, to convince our people that, that okay, you're, you're not escaping from the culture here, but we're coming here to remind one another that we're sent to the culture. And actually reminding these people that they are gospel witnesses. Functionally, we're all missionaries. I would say the same to each and every one of you. That you're here to be reminded of the gospel, to be sent out to those same five circles of influence that I just mentioned with the gospel. And so that's probably the biggest challenge is like helping them to see and catch the, the vision and the mission of God in the scriptures. Well, I think at the end of the day, Nick, you're right. We, you said in the sermon, uh, America is trending 20 years behind Europe. Um, we, we live in this, in a similar, um, context, uh, not, not the same, but, but at least trending that way. Um, and church, I hope that you hear the same kind of things that Pastor Ryan and I say to you over and over again, uh, that we are here every week to be sent out. Uh, and so we're not trying to make something up new. We're trying to make something, we're just trying to say what the Bible has, has told right. us to do. So I think those five areas are good for us to think about 
Um, hey, who, who are people that don't know Jesus that I come in contact with? Uh, that would be great for us, for all of us to consider uh, how to engage people with the gospel. Uh, now, Nick, tell us what is the most enjoyable aspect yeah. of being in an international context. Yeah. So, so the most enjoyable aspect for some people, it would be probably the most frustrating aspect. Because in this context, it's common to have people for three years and they leave. And so I've heard from, uh, we're, we're part of the International Baptist Convention. So it's a, it's a convention of churches based out of Frankfurt, um, Germany. And it's a convention of English-speaking churches. And I talk with the pastors and they say, oh, right as you get to know people, they're gone. Right as you kind of build a connection, they leave. And one of the things I've challenged our church to do is don't view this as a negative but view this as an ascending opportunity. And so one of the most enjoyable pieces is we have people from places in the world that I couldn't go. We have people, one of our girls from Indonesia, she was disowned by her family when she submitted her, Christ, her, her life to Christ. So we have people from really tough places in the world, and when they go back, they take the gospel with them. And so the most encouraging piece for me is I would argue the International English-Speaking Church is one of the greatest sending opportunities in the world. Because we get people for three or four years, and then we get to send them to Istanbul, to London, to Madrid. Because many of the people, they come to Bratislava, and we're a stepping stone city. And they're here for a couple of years to get the experience with IBM or with Dell or with one of these groups to go to a bigger and better city in their minds. And for me, how do we train our 10-year people to disciple those three-year people? How do, how do we surround them so that when a new person comes in, we put our arm around them and we say, hey, hey, I don't know a lot, but I'll teach you what I know. I don't have it all figured out, but let's walk through life in these next year, two year, three years. And so I think that's the most exciting piece for me is, but, but, but it's a challenge because you have to work with the mentality for our 10 year people that I am pouring into people just to lose them. But you understand not to lose them. I want to stop saying they're leaving. I want to say we're sending them. It's tent-making missionaries to this place. And so I'm really encouraged by the opportunity within that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, um, what a great opportunity for us as, as we partner with uh, you guys to see the gospel spread. You, Covenant Hope, have, have a part in that, uh, just in praying um, and financially and, and all those things. It, it's a way for us uh, even uh, with who we are, to be involved in sending people all around the world. Uh, what a great joy um, that is. Uh, as Nick uh, told you, and I forgot to say it when I introduced him, uh, Nick and Amanda were here. Um, they came before Covenant Hope was replanted, and uh, they were a part of the process to, to see God do something really cool. And um, we actually, uh, he was, was one of the guys that I sought out pretty quickly. Pastor Ron and I uh, were meeting um, and, and saw out uh, Nick pretty quickly. And, and we just got to have lots of conversations. What does a healthy church look like? How do we make mature disciples in, in this context? We, we were asking those questions and actually used to eat breakfast at Griffin's. Unfortunately, it, it, it fell in. Um, and, so, and so uh, if, if you could, uh, how would you encourage Covenant Hope to continue making mature disciples after five years as we, yeah. as we look to August and celebrate five years as a church? Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Ordinary faithfulness with gospel intentionality. The church changed. You look at the church in Rome. Nobody knows who started it. Persecution came, they went all over the world. 
And they started a church in Rome. And Paul writes a letter to the Romans. He said, hey, keep going in the faith. There was just ordinary people that were, they were just living the gospel out. And I want you to understand that person you may share your faith with that may come to know the Lord and you say, well, I haven't done much in my life. You never know how God will use that person to share with another person and continue the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. And so as you think about these things, you know, someone had to share their faith with Billy Graham. Well, that person had to have their faith shared too by someone else. And you go on down the list. How does the gospel spread? It spreads that we continue to live it out in intentional ways. Now, of course, we always want to dream big, but this church does big gospel things by your ordinary acts of faithfulness each day. And so, like, that's what I encourage my people to, and that's what I encourage you to. Ordinary acts of faithfulness as you seek the Lord together, um, and, and you'll grow in those things as you do that. Yeah, I appreciate that. A lot of times we think uh, we make the Christian life really hard. Yeah. Uh, and what does God want for us? God wants us to be faithful where we are. Whatever aspect, whatever job you hold, whatever, uh, wherever your kids are, what schools, work with the neighborhood, just be faithful in those relationships. Yeah. And watch God work. Um, well, I'll say this as well. I often tell people in our church, you are in places that I can't be. Think about that. You're in jobs. You're around people. You live in neighborhoods and places that I just can't normatively be. In my normal flow of life, I can't live in your house. I can't work your job. God has strategically placed you there for the gospel. So, so that, that's the piece of it. It's like just realizing that None of this is by accident, even if you hate your job. And some of you might. <laughs> but God has strategically placed you there to use it for his glory and his kingdom. Yeah, so as we kind of close, tell us one gospel story, or tell us how the gospels worked since you've yeah. been in, in Slovakia. Well, um, a couple of things that I've seen, um, there's a group of, uh, there's a church plant in Bratislava, it's a Slovak-speaking spe church plant. So I've been working with them as closely as I can. They're a part of Acts 29 in Europe. And um, he is mentoring six guys throughout the country that are all pastors. And I'm so encouraged to see people thinking theologically, practically, intentionally. But not just that, they seem to be healthy. They're there for one another. They're encouraging one another. Personal story from our lives is we've, we've gotten to build a relationship with a, with a couple that are um, lawyers, both the husband and the wife, and they've become probably our closest friends, and they're unbelievers. And uh, the wife studied abroad in the States um, when she was in high school, and she lived with the pastor. And she told me when they met us, she said, I knew I could trust you when you're an American pastor. And I said, no one's ever said that. <laughs> you know, not a single person in the rest of the world has said, I can trust the American pastors. Um, but they're not Christians yet. But oftentimes in the Slovak culture, you, you expect a, a two plus year relationship to get to the gospel. But Amanda's had the chance to walk with her in the neighborhood and talk about the gospel and Amanda shared the gospel with her, and she said, I've been wanting to ask, but I was afraid if I disagreed, it would harm our relationship. She cares. They value us. They're not there yet, but we trust. Even if we're watering the seed that's already been planted by this pastor years ago, we're participating in God's work to draw this family to himself. So, Great. Uh, quickly, 
uh, a couple prayer requests for your family, for the church, and then I'm going to ask, I'm going to put yeah. Amanda on the spot. We're going to come here. She's going to come here. We're going to pray for you guys. Yeah. Um, prayer request for us specifically is just for the church. There's leadership stuff going on. We're really trying. We're a 30-year-old church, but we kind of still function like a church plant. Um, we've only had about 10 years of stability as a church, and so we're still working through a lot of like healthy leadership structures. And so, uh, actually, I think they were talking about some of that today. I asked them to meet and discuss some of these things with me not there because I said, I want you to take ownership for your church. And so just prayers for, for the church as they think about those things. Prayers for our family as we, uh, Julia will start school this year. A church in the States has, has actually, f- is funding Julia's school at an international school, so we're very thankful for that. That's a blessing. But just all of the changes that come with starting school in those pieces, and as we really think about long-term vision and direction for our family, prayer for that for, for us. Great. Amanda, if you want to come up here. Uh, Nate, Nate and Tim, will you step up here with me and just like put your hands on them and um, let's pray. Uh, for them. Let's pray together. God in heaven, you are a a glorious father who has called us into a family, and that family reaches all around the world. Uh, That family is doing work in places that we, we as Covenant Hope, may have never imagined. Um, God, I am so thankful uh, for a gospel that is not bound by any kind of physical boundary. No uh, boundary can keep the gospel out. As Paul said, the gospel is not chained. And so I pray for Nick and Amanda and Julia and Elizabeth that you uh, would continue uh, to grow them, uh, unite them together as a family. Would you uh, keep them? Uh, Would you protect Nick and Amanda's marriage? Uh, Would you help the girls grow up in the gospel? We pray that they will make a profession of faith when they, they meet Jesus. Uh, as, they, as they have encounters with him every, uh, potentially every day, but would they uh, seriously consider what the reality of Jesus means in their lives? We pray for the church as they are working through some leadership uh, questions. Would you give Nick wisdom as he leads them? They may have never asked these kinds of questions before. And so would you help them understand the scriptures and hold convictions that would reflect the scriptures? Um, God, I pray that you would um, use this church uh, in the international setting to see people all around the world come to faith in Jesus Christ. Would you help them disciple their people so that they may reach the world just through ordinary faithfulness? So God, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.